Hi, Dan. Hello. How are you? Doing good. Good. How's everything up there? Oh, touch and go. Yeah. Touch and go. Yeah. Is that a phrase that you use, touch and go? Uh, no, it ha- it's too too much of a loaded phrase for me, I think. Oh, how, what is it loaded with? I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's, you know, it's a little innuendish. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. But no, I don't. I, I don't use that kind of, uh, do you, do you use that expression you use besides right now? Touch and go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Touch and go is a, is a phrase that my, that my dad used, but you know, it had the connotation of doing touch and goes, uh-huh. which is a, which is an airplane thing. What is that? My what dad is that in the a, context of an airplane? How does that, um, what is that? Oh, a touch and go is a thing. Like that, a landing, uh, a certain kind of a landing. Yeah, a landing and then a, a taking off immediately afterward. It's a thing that you that airplanes do when they're practicing pilots. You know, the hardest part of flying is landing. And so you'll go out at a, at a small airstrip somewhere and do touch and goes where you you land and then you put your flaps back up and you reset your plane while you're hauling ass down the runway and then you power up again and take off and then fly around and come back and land again. And you can do that all afternoon. And those are called touch and go. That sounds so boring. Well, until you've landed an airplane, which is nerve wracking, it's, it's both boring and nerve wracking, kind of like swimming. Have you ever been in an airplane while it was landing? Hmm. Interesting question. Yes. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I've piloted an airplane while it was landing. Did you, I mean, you're or, saying you, you landed the plane in the terminology. Yes. I landed the plane. <laughs> I've excellent. been in an airplane, Dan, all by myself. Really? Was yes, it in I the have, sky at the time? It was. I have, I have flown solo in an airplane. Oh my gosh. For and, real? And you know, you have to land. So do, landed it then. Don't you need a pilot's license to do those things? Ah, it was part of getting a pilot's license. Do you have one? Not anymore. You had a pilot's license? This has never come up in all the years. This has never come up. Is that right? Between you and me, uh, it's never never come up in conversation. I've never heard you say this before. I've never heard this. This is is news. And I think this is probably news to everyone listening, too. No. Yes. No, no, no. Yes. No, there are plenty of people listening that, that, that know that I had a pilot's license. I don't know if this is, if that's true. I'm going to say that's not true. I've surely talked about it. I've sure, I I surely have. Okay. But yes, uh, it was, um, you know, my dad, my dad was a pilot and, and flying around was one of the things that we did together. Um, he kept his airplane at Merrill field, which was just about a mile from his house. So we would pop over there on an afternoon and fire it up and, and take off and fly around Alaska. And we would do it on weekends too. It was, it was, um, one of our things. And we, he and I, um, he and I went on some long cross country trips together. That's cool. We flew up to Dawson city. Uh, he flew me to college when I first went away to college 
packed up my plane and flew down to to Washington to go to school. What kind of plane is this that uh, you were flying around in? We had several different planes over the years, but they were all in the 172, 182 Cessna family. Okay. For a while, uh, there was one with floats. We had floats on it. Um, we had a, it, my dad liked tricycle gear airplanes. He learned to fly on tail draggers. And, and by that, I mean, there are kind of two ways that small planes are situated on their landing gear. Tail draggers are ones that just as it sounds, there's a little tiny wheel on the very far back of the tail. And then, uh, two, you know, two tires up in front under the wings. Right. And so when you're, when you're taxiing, which is the word for driving around on the ground. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to see forward because your plane is sitting all the way back on its little tailwheel. So if you're looking out the windshield, you're looking kind of up at the sky. Uh, so you have to kind of look out the side windows to know where you're going. And then tricycle gear, there are three wheels in the front, a, a nose wheel and two wheels. And that kind of airplane sits square on the ground and you can look out the window just like you're looking out of a car. So even though my dad grew up flying t tail draggers, he mm -hmm. preferred tricycle gears. And, uh, and those planes are, are slightly less, uh, most of the, most of the bush pilots use tail draggers. Uh, and so we, we put big tires on our plane, but you couldn't put the really big tires on it. That would be ridiculous. Like truck tires or something? No, like big, big bouncy ones. The, 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 the bush pilots put these big rubber tires that, you know, are like, um, that are basically like inner tubes, giant, giant bouncy inner tubes. Um, and that lets them land their planes on very rough territory, uh, you know, like unpaved and, and, in stream beds and stuff. And my dad liked to do that stuff. He would happily put a plane down on any kind of patch of grass or, or a uh, pile of gravel. But he, um, but he preferred the gentility of the, of the 182 to say the rough and tumble of the 180. These are, these are all Cessna airplanes. Right. Describe. But so it was only natural that I would learn also, well, I mean, I learned to fly as a kid just because dad would uh, reach over and tap me on the head with his mm -hmm. hand like pat, pat, pat. And that was the sign that you have control of the airplane. So take he would over, pat so. me on the head. Yeah. And I would take over. Um, and so he taught me the, he taught me the ropes and I was in the civil air patrol, which was the civilian air force auxiliary that, um, does most of the search and res rescue in Alaska. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when I was 17 and 18, I, I spent a lot of time flying and, uh, and got my student pilot's license and soloed and, and spent that summer screwing, screwing things up in the world with my little plane but it's expensive to keep a pilot's license and 
expensive because uh, you're required to take tests and, and certifications and stuff, or, or is it just yeah. a fee, like a, a yearly fee? No, no, you have to, you have to maintain, um, a certain number of hours of flying time every year. And, you know, that's expensive. Gas is expensive. You have to, you have to be, um, you have to check out with an instructor and they're expensive, but also every year your plane has to undergo a, um, like a, uh, diagnostic, like kind of a, almost a rebuild called an annual. Your plane has to have an annual. And <laughs> if it doesn't, it, they won't certify it to fly. And annuals are very expensive. You know, it's like taking your car to the mechanic and saying like, go through everything. It's why you, it's why so infrequently do you see small aircraft involved in crashes. You would think that all these little putt-putt airplanes flying around, that they'd be crashing right and left, but they don't because they're pretty meticulously monitored and kept in the air. You don't, you don't get to be somebody that's like some backyard shade tree mechanic who's got his little airplane tied together with, with twine. They don't let you do that. If they did, that would be me. I'd be up there in some airplane that was tied together. And of course it would, it would stop working and that's a bad thing to do. It's a bad thing to have happen if you're, if you're in an airplane. I mean, it sounds dangerous. Yeah. The whole operation is dangerous. Flying an airplane is dangerous. Yeah. But the people that love it, Dan, they love it. I I got to pilot a plane, which was a a Cessna. I couldn't tell you what kind of Cessna it was, but a friend of mine was a flight instructor. Um, Mm -hmm. This was maybe 15 years ago or so. And he, I was a flight instructor and he was working on getting his commercial airlines pilot at a license at the time. And he did go on to work at one of the little like small airlines. And then eventually he's at a big airline somewhere now. And he wanted, he, his suggestion was that, um, the group of us, little four, four of us go and fly down from central Florida to the keys. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, we'll, we'll fly in the plane. And so we got in this little Cessna and, and he says, here, come and help me check and see if we have a full tank. Help me check how full the tank is. And I thought that, you know, we were going to like stand on the side of it and look, look at it, you know, pop open a little metal door or something. But he climbed up and um, used a wooden dowel, which he inserted into a, a hole in the top of the wing. That's right. And said, yeah, we got enough gas. I said, what, what are you doing up there? And he said, this is where the gas is. And I said, isn't there like some kind of gauge or measurement that you you would use to take like something. He says, yeah, this, this stick works. Uh-huh. And that made me nervous that there was just a stick between us and running out of gas, but we made it. We did make it. And while we were in the sky, he said, Dan, do you want to try flying it? And I said, no, no, no. And he said, go ahead, go ahead. And he, ahead. he insisted, he insisted. And I did. And, uh, it was nerve wracking. It was very nerve wracking at the time. I was already I mean, I'm not afraid to fly at all anymore, but back then this was kind of peak, peak fear. And so that was a big thing for me to just hold on to the, do you call it a wheel? It was a, it, it looked like a steering wheel. It wasn't a, a stick like in a fighter plane. 
Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, start turning a little bit. You know, do something. I said, no, no. I, I want it to just stay perfectly still the way <laughs> the way it is right now. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. He wanted you to <laughs> swing around, huh? He wanted me to, you know, make some flight adjustments or something. Yeah. And I was more concerned if, you know, if the radio went out, if we had a redundant radio and that kind of thing. That was much more interesting to me, not looking around too much. But it felt like a Jeep in the sky in that, like, there was, felt like there was very little, just a very thin piece of aluminum between you and the clouds. And I didn't, I didn't like that. And then at another point, uh, we were talking about how high the plane could fly. And he said, um, you know, whatever, whatever it was, oh, it's much, much lower than how high a jet flies. I said, well, that's good. And uh, I said, what's the flight ceiling? And whatever it was, he told me. And I said, well, how high are we now? He's like, we're just about a thousand feet over the flight ceiling or something. I said, that seems, uh. it's there a hundred feet. I said, that seems too high. And he says, it's a little too high. And I said, should yeah. we be concerned? He's like, nah. And that, that made me a little nervous. And then you way up there, huh? Wow. Yeah. And then, um, and then at one point, you know, I could listen to, he had the, the headphones that he gave me allowed me to listen to the conversation between him and the towers as we were flying around. And I, at, at one point the tower said something and immediately he's, he like, you know, made us descend like urgently. And I said, what's going on? What happened? He says, oh, there was another flight coming by that's going much faster and it would have hit us. And, I, and that also made me nervous because you feel like that kind of thing shouldn't, you shouldn't have to react urgently at any point during flying. I feel like it should all be, because like I, I know a lot about boats and everything that happens on the water, you really get a lot of advance notice that it's going to happen. You're looking and, and they teach you, as I'm sure you know, because you have a lot of maritime experience as well, that when you're piloting a boat, you're looking in the distance and you're thinking, okay, I need to start turning now because that's where I'm going to want to be when I get to that point. So you're, you're driving, you're piloting it in advance. And I would have thought the same thing would be true in the sky, but I guess the, you've got the whole other 360 degrees, the, the, the Z vector happening. So they could be coming from above and below and yeah, side to side. There's a lot to think about up there in the sky. Fourth dimension. Right. Time. Time. That's right. Planes planes fly on time, mm-hmm. Dan. <laughs> well, that all sounds exactly right. Yeah. As you described it, you, you do check the gas with a stick. That doesn't seem they couldn't. Because like when I check the oil in my car, which I don't need to do anymore because we're not allowed in the new cars. Mm. There is a little, you know, a little dipstick. I wanted at least a dipstick for the gas. Just give me a dipstick. Why wasn't there a, a gauge on the inside of the plane to do this? Oh, well, there is, but, you know, m- my dad crashed uh, his airplane and um, crashed it because it ran out of gas. And it ran out of gas even though... Um, even though he had recently gotten gas mm-hmm. and it ran out of gas, uh, they think because someone did one of those, someone in Canada did like a liters versus gallons conversion improperly and didn't put enough gas in. And, um, 
and I think didn't use the stick, didn't put the, didn't put the stick in there. We would like to say thank you very much to Holus Bolus Winery, makers of amazing independent wine for independent people. They don't have any investors or some gigantic factory operation. The Holus Bolus Octopus is just the four arms and four legs of Amy and Peter, husband and wife team, who love wine, know wine, and want everyone's wine to be delicious and made by actual human beings, not spreadsheets and no corporate meetings. And when I say this wine is made by people... It really is just Amy and Peter farming five acres of their vineyard, the Joy Fantastic. It really is from their farm to your table. Everything Holus Bolus has done has been built over time, just the two of them. They've reinvested whatever profits they made over the years back into the winery until they could finally plant their own vineyard back in 2014. You know they know their stuff because Amy is a master of wine. Let me tell you about this. Of the 409 masters of wine on the planet... Only 52 of them are in the United States, and of those, only 18 are women. Holus Bolus uses high-quality grapes from cool climates. They're certified organic by the CCOF, and you don't want to mess with the CCOF, take it from me. Every grape in every bottle is grown in Santa Rita Hills and Santa Maria Valley, California. Whether you go with the Pinot Noir or a Chardonnay or the Syrah, it's all great. And they have two labels. One is named after their vineyard, which is the Joy Fantastic, and the other is after the winery, Holus Bolus. I have tried them all. They are all amazing. It doesn't matter which of those three is your favorite, the Pinot Noir, the Chardonnay, the Syrah, you're going to be happy. You can get all three, which is what I recommend. Uh, Try them all. Uh, but what's cool about the Holus Bolus wines is they're naturally made using native yeasts. They are vegan. There are no animal products used, period. All of their wines are bottled with low levels, levels, if I can speak clearly, of sulfur, too. So head on over to thejoyfantastic.com. You'll learn more, and you can order something for yourself or a loved one. The holidays are coming up. It's a great time to get wine as a gift. You show up to, uh, you know, everyone's under lockdown, right? So what are you going to do? Send them the wine. Send them the wine. They will love it, and you'll be their hero. You can try one wine. You can get one of the Joy Fantastic three packs, which is great. Or you can join the wine club for either label. Uh, and if you think their octopus on the label is cool, you can get the t-shirt. I've got two of the t-shirts. Wine club members, if you join up, uh, you get 15% off every order. And guess what? Listeners of this show, Amy and Peter, are going to give you the sweet wine club discount through December 31st of 2020 if you use the code Roadwork15. You can remember that because it's 15% off. So Roadwork15 when you check out at thejoyfantastic.com. Thanks so much to Holus Bolus for making this show possible. My dad was flying along out in the middle of Yukon territories and the motor shut off. That's scary, man. It was scary. He fell out of the sky. Um, so a lot of the small plane stuff, you know, there are still... If you look at the Cessnas that are flying around in the sky, a lot of them were were made in the fifties. It's the one. It's the one place where you remember when we were kids and you used to see nineteen fifties cars all the time driving yes, around. Yes, the highlight of the day. No, yeah, not even fifty. Not even uh, when we were kids. Like when I was in high school, you could you could have a 1950s car. There were kids at my high school that had 1950s cars. You could still buy them at used car lots. And then most of those cars just didn't survive the, the, the subsequent 30 years. 
<laughs> that it's been since I was in high school. But um, but there are 1950s airplanes flying around all the time. Um, and uh, honestly, it's kind of a miracle that the that the airframes have um, withstood the years so well. But the thing the thing the thing that makes jumbo jets, I think. Um, the thing that stresses them more than anything is that they, they're pressurized. So every time they go up in the air, they, they pressurize mm -hmm. and then they depressurize when they come back down. And that constant pressurization is the thing that puts wear and tear on all the rivets and, you know, that's where they get stress fractures. These little Cessnas, I, I've never heard anybody describe them as Jeeps, but that's exactly what they are. They're super stripped down there's no pressurization there's right. no um there's there's not anything but a but a little bit of uh a little bit of foil and cardboard yeah, between you nothing. and aluminum it's nothing i've been in so many airplanes where there were holes that you could kind of look out well sort of like 1950s cars where you'd look out and and see the ground or or feel the wind i mean in my dad's airplanes, if you wanted to have some cool air, um, there were two sort of um, cans, I guess, up in the in the two corners up by the windshield, and you would pull them out, and they were just basically um, open. They were these cans that that were open to the outside and you would direct the opening in the can toward yourself and it would just blow air at you, you know, <laughs> non-mechanical <laughs> yeah. air, air was coming in through a hole somewhere and then coming out the other side through this can. Like there's no, there's no internal, uh, certainly no air conditioning. I don't even remember. I don't think there's a heater either. I think if you want it warmer in the airplane, you just direct the engine heat toward you somehow. Right. That makes sense. I mean, that's that's that seems like what these planes would do. But it's so basic, but that's the thing, John. It's it's so basic. I mean, it was it was just a little bit more than a lawnmower engine strapped to some planks. I mean, it was barely barely more than that. But as a consequence, you know, because they're aluminum, they don't rust. And so they fly forever. Yeah. I mean, I, I just put Cessna for sale into uh, the internet here. And the first one that comes up is a 1978 Cessna. There's a 2016. Oh, they, these people are fancy. They got all these new ones. 2004, 1982. So, I mean, my dad's planes were all from the 50s. 1971. I, don't even I guess know as long as the rivets hold, the plane is good forever. Well, and that's what the, that's what your annual does. Your annual, you they go around and like when when you would lift up the hood on my dad's planes, it was like, um, well, it was like a hood made out of aluminum that had been lifted up and down five hundred thousand times over the course of a person's lifetime because they all felt like they all felt like they were made out of hammered tin, hand hammered. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they were like, 
they didn't fit properly. They were all, it was like the, I mean, those planes were handmade. I feel like they, they really, you could see the things that were broken and there were a lot of things that were broken. It was just that in the course of doing the annual, the mechanic did not feel like they were broken in a significant way or a way that impeded the ability for the plane to fly. Right. So, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was, it was a good life growing up around airplanes. And I think that, I think that I would have easily gone a different route in life if I had, what? I think about this a lot. If I had, if I had done a couple of things differently, or I'm sorry, if I were slightly different person, um, and I think that the difference would be, I mean, this is one of those, this is one of those key questions and it has to do with, with ambition. Um, I used to fantasize about when I was a teenager, even about living in Alaska and being a pilot. And there was always some, some voice that sort of insisted that I do, that I get out of Alaska Mm -hmm. and, and, um, not being in Alaska, there would be no point in being a pilot for me because the kind of pilot that I want to be is an Alaska pilot. Mm -hmm. I hear planes, you know, I live close to an airport. Planes fly around me all the time. And I have this wonderful little app that tells me what the planes are. And I'm always watching planes fly and, and the, the app is great. It can, it tells you the flight plan of the airplanes too. So I can see the plane and I can see where it's going and I can see where it's been. And I'm, I always marvel like, oh, wow, there are people that do this down here too. It just feels like such an Alaska thing. But here's a little 172 and it took off on San Juan Island and it's headed down to Olympia. And it's like, wow, sure. That's, I know who that is. That's some guy and that's his, what he's doing. <laughs> he's got that plane and he's, he's doing that today. But what, what? I have friends that are bush pilots, you know, like what would it have been? What would it have taken for me to be a bush? pilot? I would have been a great bush pilot. Sure. I think it always comes down to that. I didn't join the military. Did you ever have any feeling about joining the military? Yes, I sure did. I definitely didn't want to do it. Is that right? It, it was, I feel like you and I have talked about this. Not much. We did once a long time ago, but yeah, no, I, I definitely, um, really was not strongly. Yeah. Not, not for me. I was just, there was no, there was no allure to it, uh, at all for me. I missed, I missed the boat on that one. I, I have a lot of respect for people who are in the military and several of my friends when I was in high school, uh, you know, did join the military and, um, one of them, uh, got dishonorably discharged. The other one was mm. horribly maimed in an accident and ah. the other, the other one loved it and had a wonderful career in the military. Wow. Yeah. 
Do you consider the Coast Guard to be the mil- military? Yeah. 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 You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I've I've been a long time advocate for national service. And I do feel like we should have mandatory national service for people. Like, uh, like Israel turn, does? Yeah. When they turn 18, they have to do two years or four years. Two years, I think, is all you could ever get away with making people do. But, mm-hmm. but in because of because United States, I don't feel like national service should be confined to the military. I think that there should be uniformed service mm-hmm. that's more or less equivalent that fulfills right. your that fulfills your your duty across the whole spectrum of of what we think of as the national purview. So forest service and um, park service and in a way even postal service. And I was thinking about it the other day, like Amtrak should be a thing that you could, that, that would qualify for national service. You know, you should be able to go spend two years working for Amtrak and it's kind of a, like there are endless opportunities, endless places where the the nation would benefit from the you know the labor and study of of recent high school graduates, right? Like and the and they would they would benefit. Like if I if I'd had the opportunity at eighteen to spend two years working on the railroad, I absolutely would have done it. That would have been that would have been the the version of it. I think that I would have pursued. Yeah, I can see that. I can totally see you doing that. Last summer, when I was on my motorcycle trip, I was in eastern Oregon, up in the mountains, with my friends riding riding our dirt bikes, and we came upon a firewatch tower. And there used to be firewatch towers all across the West and most of them are gone, but there, there still are firewatch towers that are manned. And this was a really tall one and a beautiful one. And we, we, we rode up to it and this kid came out and shouted down like, Hey, we were like, Hey, he said, you can come up. And we were like, wow, <laughs> that's so cool. How cool. Yeah. And so we, you know, we took our helmets off and we climbed up this endless set of ladders until, and the whole thing's made out of timber, you know? So you, you're up there. There's a certain point where you, there's a certain point where you're up in a timber structure mm-hmm. and you very definitely feel like this now is too tall to be made out of wood. And then you, and then it keeps going so that you very definitely are like, this is a thing made out of logs and we are, I mean, what, 10 stories, 12 stories. They're, they're, they're huge. And so you get to the top and it's creaking and it just feels like there's absolutely nothing holding you on. You can just fly off of it. Not a place you'd want to be in a strong wind. And up there is a kid 
you know, some college kid, 20 years old, who decided that he was going to spend his summer at, uh, living in a fire watchtower. And he was super grateful that we had come up to his little mountain because he was clearly lonely and going crazy. But he's living in this one room with 360 degree view across you know, hundreds of thousands of acres. And all he's doing is looking for smoke. He's just, just look out, look out the window all day looking for smoke. And if he sees any smoke, he calls it in. He's got a big compass and maps all around and he can, he's been trained, I guess, to, if he sees a plume of smoke to be able to direct people to it directly. Uh, like a fantastic, I really envied him. I was like up here all by yourself all summer, just staring out the windows. I mean, I have to assume you're working on your novel and he had something he was working on, you know, he was reading books. Mm -hmm. But I do, I do believe, and I think I've said it probably many times before. I do think that I should have done something like that. And instead, I, 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 I did my own program, my own version of two years abroad, but, or five years abroad. But I, but I think looking back, if I had it, if I was advising myself today, I would say, you know, go, because my mom always told me, Dan, I should go to Hawaii and park cars in a fancy hotel for two years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tried to get a job doing that. I thought that'd be fun. I thought it, it would have been fun. And I think the only reason that I, I never would have gotten that job is that I just looked too much like a hippie. I was just, you know, I, by that point I had let my hair grow and I was, I was too much of an iconoclast. I think you have to be, you have to maintain pretty tight grooming to be a valet at a nice hotel. Yeah. They want, they want to instill trust in the customers and the patrons yeah. of the place. They don't want the, the hippie to be parking the car. They want to see they a clean cut, not. a clean cut young man in a pair of Navy shorts and a button front shirt running back and forth with keys in his hand and a little slip of paper and. That's right. That's right. You get it. Yeah. That, I, get I applied it, yeah. for one of those jobs and they, um, they weren't very clear on how much I would get paid. Oh, really? Yeah. It was weird because I had come from hourly wages on all of my jobs prior to that. And this one, they're like, well, you make whatever you make. And the guy was a real jerk. The guy that was interviewing me too. And you could tell that the turnover at this place was so high that he didn't have, you know, the five minutes that he was wasting interviewing you, it just, he couldn't be bothered to do it. It was just, you know, and I said, well, how, how, how much do you make at this? He's like, you make what you make, which was his way of saying, you won't be receiving much hourly compensation. You'll be working for tips. So it depends on how many par cars you park. And, and, but the whole thing, the whole way this was set up, which I didn't like was you were in competition with all of the other valets, all of the other kids that were working there. Whoever was able to park the car faster and run back faster would get the next one. It oh, wasn't, yeah. there was not a system that, that was in any way, shape or form fair. It was oh, just, yeah. 
whoever's faster and does it faster. But I felt like this would encourage carelessness. Sure, recklessness, Dan. And I, I didn't, I didn't like that. Uh, I didn't want to do it. And I also didn't like not knowing how much I was going to make. I want to know what you know my expected because I was, I, I was living large at you know three dollars and uh, sixty-five cents in my other job. Right. I'm not going to walk away from three dollars and sixty-five cents an hour for uh-huh. ma- maybe you'll make fifty bucks today. Right. I heard that. You know. Well, I think it's a. I think it's a thing that if you go down to the hotel down at the down at the end of the block or whatever, it, it, that would that sounds like it would suck. But I think if you moved to Honolulu mm-hmm. and did it, the whole you make what you make. I mean, all you're just you're just trying to make enough money to to get some plantains and a <laughs> and a grolsch. So I don't know, but that. I didn't do I didn't do that either, and then, but I boy I, I wish that I could have joined Amtrak. Now that there's a new presidential administration, I'm wondering whether I'm going to get a cabinet appointment somehow. You know, there's got to be. Here's the thing: <laughs> there's got to be someone, yeah, as part of the Biden team who listens to one of, if not all of. My show. I guarantee you 100% there is a someone from Biden's camp listening to the show right now. I guarantee this. And so <clears throat> guarantee it. Probably probably they're not um probably they're not in a uh like major decision making position. You know, I agree, they're probably but, not it. But give them some credit. I think they can walk this up the chain. Well, that's what I'm. That's what I think, right? Or that's what I'm hoping that someone, someone working there with Biden, because you know, I definitely have people listening to the show who work for Governor Inslee. Mm-hmm. Um, enough, enough that I, I wouldn't be surprised if one of them hadn't at some point said, "Hey, Governor, listen to this," and actually played some of the show for the governor, because I, you know, I there are people that are close to Governor Inslee that listen to the show. Sure, <clears throat> but. I'm not sure how, what kind of case you could make to Biden and to a presidential administration that they needed someone like me working closely with them. Somebody like me who really has his finger on the pulse, real boots on the ground kind of, you know, Northwest, um, you know, born leader. How, how I'm going to, how I'm going to actually connect those dots, right? Actually, get all the way to um, to the point that like a caravan of black SUVs pulls up out front and uh, someone comes to the door and says, we need you to come with us. That's, that's what I've really been practicing for. We need you to come with us. I've been waiting to hear those words my whole life. We need you to come with us. And I think I'm, I think I'm more than ready. And, um, it doesn't seem any more likely that it's going to happen now than at any other point in in my life recently. I think it's pretty likely. I think it's more likely than ever, given our current political um, what have you. We need you to come with us. Yeah, John, it, you know what? We're going to need you to come uh, and work with us here. We're going to need you to come up here. Would you do it? Yeah, if, like, if you were called to Washington, would you go? Absolutely. I'm talking D.C., not where you are. Absolutely. 
What if they and, just put, know, what if they just gave you like a studio apartment? You can't live like that. It, the thing is, <clears throat> to get called to Washington, um, you know, they're not calling. They they wouldn't come in a caravan of SUVs because they needed me as an intern. Um, they would need me to do some some work there, and if that were the case. It doesn't matter where I live. I would live in a studio apartment. I know the government doesn't have a ton of money. I'm not doing it for the money. <laughs> right. This is your duty. You're doing your duty. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to say like, we have, this job pays $250,000 in benefits. It's a, it's a government job. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's going to be, I'm going to be lucky to, uh, to, to make any money at all. But the, the, the key I think is that. It's a GS job and I, I'm going to be, I'm going to need it to be like GS in the teens. I'm not, I'm not flying across the country. I'm not throwing it all away for a GS eight. No, no. And you, I know you're the that, kind of guy you're going to walk in and you're going to right away, you're going to sit down and say, you know, where's my clearance? Right. Right. You're not there. You're not there to get coffee for people. I'm probably not going to get clearance at anything because I don't have a military background. Well, you need clearance to, gonna... to be in these meetings. These are important meetings you're going to be in. Mm. Yeah, I suppose. But what's above top secret? What, what's the thing above top secret? There's secret. Top secret. Top secret. Ultra, ultra double, triple top secret. I think you need that one. There's the Q rating. That's where that's where Q came from. Is it? What is the Q rating? Yeah. Q rating is um, you get you <clears throat> you're read into the nuke stuff. So, you so know, you okay. Have, so there's secret secret clearances, top secret clearances, and it's it. But this isn't. I'm gonna find an article. That's the only downside that we don't do the show live is because if we did it live, we'd have the the Twitter people telling us. Here it is. The United States Department of State Security Clearances. This is where you would think it would explain what they are. Look at this. There's a lot to this. I used to work at an aerospace company and they made missiles, stuff like that. Yeah. And so just to work in some of the different parts of the buildings where they had the engineers and other things like that, which was at a different facility. I was in the like corporate part of the facility, not the engineering part. So I never had to get one, but most of the people that worked with me had a, at least a level of security clearance. Clear. Yeah. It'd be just, just to be able to be in the, in the building, even, even though I was like doing system administration and, you know, never had access to anything. Um, they still did like big interviews just to make sure. Well, the, this Wikipedia page says that top secret is the top top one yeah i don't believe top that secret that's not but no there's there's lots of other fake ones. news but i don't you know i believe me i would i would happily serve in the intelligence community but i don't think that that's ever going to happen those guys are all real squares if you will it it is no dream but i feel like uh i would work at the department of the interior i would work at the department of state or education like i i uh, i would work in any uh ministerial department i have my my sister one of my sister's close friends has been in the um 
the diplomatic service now for, well, for a long time. I mean, she's as old as we are and yeah. she's been doing this as her career. And she was stationed in St. Petersburg for a long time. And, um, you know, they just shut down the, the consulate there kicked everybody out, but she's in the, she's in the diplomatic service in on the path to become an ambassador. Hmm. And, you know, there are a couple of different kinds of ambassadors. There are the ambassadors that are appointed because you're the president's buddy, the president, you, you gave a lot of money to his campaign and he makes you the ambassador to Finland. Um, and then there, then there are the ambassadors who have worked in embassies and consulates and done state department work for decades and they, they earn the job, right? They work their way up and then they become, um, the ambassador class. And she's, I think that's the next stage in her career. And I'm, I'm thrilled by her, by her progress. And, you know, it'd be so neat. Well, it will be so neat when she finally gets her own country, I guess. Ambassador just seems like such a great job, but it's not the type of thing that you, um, well, I guess ambassador is exactly the type of thing that you, that you also can step into. You can completely step over all these people who have made this their entire career mm -hmm. and just be some dick who mm -hmm. gets appointed to be the ambassador to France because the president is a dummy or maybe you'd be an amazing ambassador to France. I think Al Gore was probably a great ambassador to Japan. But I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think anybody's going to swoop in. Don't you feel that ambassador to France is a demotion regardless of what your position was before? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that would be the last ambassadorship I would want. Japan, why that's is that? badass. Why wouldn't you want to be the ambassador to France? There's nothing there I want. Well, but that's the thing. There are those ambassadorships Japan, they've got where, the, all the, the great consoles, cool cars, awesome phones. Right. You know, the beautiful mountains and, and those, what are the, the beautiful um, trees that drop those petals? Ginkgo? Ginkgo yeah. trees? And you get, you know, they have great food, sushi. No, no, no. But the thing about being an ambassador is your job is to have cocktail parties and eat food. Yeah. So I want, I want sushi there. I don't want whatever, you know. The danger is that you get a, a, a posting in a country where you actually have to do a bunch of hard work, where people are in trouble, where your the nation's relationship with that country is fraught. You know, if you're, if you're ambassadoring and it's hard, I mean, that's probably also got to be really gratifying, but, but France, I mean, all you'd have to do, you're just basically running messages and having and eating petit fours. Seems pretty nice. I bet. I bet you on the to, list. I'd have of to like, drive a Peugeot around. Well, no, someone would drive you. You're the ambassador yeah, in a Peugeot. I don't want to do that. Best ambassadorial position. There's confidential refers to information or material which, if improperly disclosed, could be reasonably expected to cause some measurable damage to national security. Secret. Right is the unauthorized disclosure of secret information or material which reasonably could be expected to cause serious damage to national security. 
top secret applied to information or material, the unauthorized disclosure of which reasonably could be expected to cause exceptionally grave damage to national security. And it says, in addition, there's some classified information so sensitive that even the extra protection measures applied to top secret information are not sufficient. This information is known as sensitive compartmented information, SCI, or special access programs, SAP. These require additional approval to be given for access to this information. But I want to give you one note here. This document says, for official use only is not a security classification. It's used to protect information covered under the Privacy Act and other sensitive data. And I have been told that if if you have, you you might have information that is top secret, for example, but that your superior officer does not have the same secrets or uh, uh, like they, they don't have the same authorization or you have special access knowledge that your superior does not have and you are required to lie to your superior officer if they demand to tell you, if they demand that you tell them, they order you to tell them you still can't do it. Mm. And it's the one time in the armed forces, military, etc., that you are allowed to lie to your superior officer. In fact, you have to. You're compelled to. Mm. Mm. So put that in your pipe. Yeah. Well, it, I, I found an article that's talking about the fact that the um, that the ambassadorships to this this is the Obama administration, but the ambassadorships to Britain, France, and Tokyo. Uh, Obama gave all of those to top donors mm. rather than professional career diplomats. And um, it says that two-thirds of the ambassadorships go to career diplomats and one-third go to uh, friends of the president. And I bet you during the Trump years that was – that tilted way closer to – or way more friends of the president, way fewer career diplomats. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it seems like it seems like Great Britain, Japan, France, Rome, Sweden. Uh, these are the ones that that people want. Uh, Norway. Oh, Luxembourg. Can you imagine being the American ambassador to Luxembourg? What a cushy job. Nothing to do there. Switzerland. Can you imagine? <laughs> that would be great. So great. Switzerland would be great. Yeah. Japan, like we uh, said, would be great. But France? Korea, amazing. Yeah, I would take the well, Korea one Well, that's for not sure. going to happen for me. But I would like to be put into a, into a decision-making capacity. I want to I share the load. I want to share the burden. There are a lot of decisions that need to be made. Uh, in, uh, you know, basically... In every department of the government, we have a lot of work to do repairing the damage, and I'm I'm absolutely ready to serve. Um, but I just have to, you know, undersecretary of something. But I have to. Um, I I don't even need that much preparation. I feel like you could throw me into any one of those jobs, and I mean there'd be a little bit of a learning curve. I'd have to walk around and ask people what they did. So what's your job? What are you what What do you do? You know, like do that thing that is so that game that's really popular on the east coast of the United States that always starts with. So where did you go to college? 
We would like to thank SaneBox for making this show possible. Do you get too much email? SaneBox is for you. I love this service. It takes unimportant emails out of the inbox and moves them into a separate folder and summarizes them in a digest. This way you only have important emails in your inbox and you can process everything else when it's convenient for you. Well, here's the cool part. You don't need to download a special app. You don't have to change your habits. You don't have to make a new account or a burner thing or anything like that. It works on top of your existing setup. It works with any email provider, with any client, with any device. Now, here's the question. How does Sane, what makes SaneBox so smart? How does it know what's important? It analyzes your past behavior. So which emails you've opened, which ones you replied to, how quickly you replied to them, how often you reply to them, and it's going to determine the importance of incoming emails based on your own behavior. But it cares about your privacy. It's never looking at the content of your email only looks at the headers. These are the same email headers that are going to show up everywhere that every server on the internet reads. They're not doing anything that jeopardizes your privacy. And they've got tons of other features too. They've got one click on subscribe. They let you snooze non-urgent emails. They let you move attachments to the cloud. And one of the best things is something called Sane Reminders. It automatically reminds you when you need to do a follow-up email. So if you want to remember to, to contact somebody in a week, if you want to you know, follow up because you're doing a sales thing, whatever it is, it also lets you snooze emails. It's a great way to defer or de-emphasize less urgent emails to read later. Really cool stuff. You can use the exclusive link that I'm going to give you in one second that will take you to a special URL that will give you $25 credit applied to your account on top of their 14-day free trial. So where you go to get that is SaneBox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X sanebox.com slash roadwork. Go there and you will get the $25 credit on top of the two-week trial. So thanks very much to SaneBox for making this show possible. You know, that's not a thing that we do on the West Coast. On the East Coast, it's just like the, it's the first question anybody asks. It's really funny. Where did you go to college? It's kind of, it's just how people how people sort themselves, how they rank themselves in, at cocktail parties. Out here in the West, it, it, it doesn't come up that much. Why do you think that is? Why is there a difference between coasts that way? I think the East Coast of the United States is very status conscious mm. compared to the West Coast. The status, you know, status is a funny thing. Um, there's a lot of status... There, there's so many status games that people play and a lot of them are obvious, like where did you go to college? And a lot of them are slightly less obvious, like how did, who did you marry? Like how, how attractive is your spouse and how big is your car? It's only, you know, it's, it's, it's glaringly obvious. But then there's, you know, there's the level where it's like, well, what could you have been, but you sacrificed it in order to be something better? That's a game that a lot of people play. I could have been rich, but instead I mm. devoted my life to the, to the, to the whales. And that's, that's status jockeying too. I mean, I'm talking about it in conversation, but also in life choices, People do make decisions, even altruistic ones, sort of conscious of how that's going to play, how that 
you know, conscious of how it sounds. And it's, um, I'm talking about, these are middle-class problems, right? A lot of people get a job, get the job that they can, but, and, and middle-class people do too. The, that whole business of, I could have been rich, except I went a different route. It's like, yeah, <clears throat> maybe, or maybe you just took the job that you, that you were offered and that directed your, the course of your life. We, we always credit ourselves with more decision-making than probably was actually true. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's true for me. I look back at my life and I, and it all feels like I made all these choices, but, but really a lot of the decisions that affected the course of my life, I'm, I, I was just standing around <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you know, and something happened. Yeah. The number of things that, the number of things I actually chased and pursued, there are some, some big ones, but most of the stuff that really happened, it was just sort of like, oh, okay, you know. Somebody was like, hey, you, come stand over here. Put your finger in this dike. And I'd be like, oh, I guess I put my finger in the dike. Durr. And I think that's true for a lot of people. But then the other but the other status stuff, I mean, one of the most boring status games is like, have you read this book? Have you read that book? But I feel like I'm a little bit, I feel like a, uh, I grew out of a world where that was one of the, the currencies that people traded in. When I was in my 30s, and 20s, it was all about, have you read this book? Have you read that book? But when you get to be 50, I don't think you still play that unless you are unless you went into an ever smaller universe where it was really about books. Uh, I, the people that are, that are about books, of course, that's what they do. But it's no longer a, it's no longer a status game. They are, they're all reading books. That's what they do for a living. But but the thing, the thing where you're sitting around a party and it's like, oh, have you read this book? Oh, it's so amazing. Oh, really? Well, I was reading this book and what do you think about that? And the, and the, and the dumbest game is the one where people are having that conversation, but they're never talking about the contents of any of those books. Super annoying. Mm. But, uh, but I think the East Coast is more status conscious. And I think in the West, there are a lot more people whose answer to those questions is just like, well, I'm just doing what I'm doing. You know, I just doing what I want. And, and, uh, you know, the kind of ski bum vibe and the ski bum vibe, boy, that's changed in the course of my life. That used to be kind of an honorable position, the ski bum. And I don't know if it still is. I don't, I don't hear from, I know there are still ski bums. I see them all the time in my Instagram feed. Cause I follow a lot of, I follow a lot of Instagram accounts where the whole point is to just show people ski crashes, just show like, oh, those are so hilarious. hard to watch. They're not, they're hilarious. hilarious but, ski oh God. <laughs> well now the ones Wasn't that are there hard a movie? to watch. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm going to need you to weigh in on this. I remember a movie. I want to say it was in the late seventies. It had Alan Alda in it. And it was about a group of what felt like at the time, incredibly old, old adults. But now I feel like they were in their mid thirties and they went on some kind of skiing trip together. And the one bit I remember from this movie is there, they were skiing 
and the one guy went down the mountain and sort of like tripped and fell and like went rolling down the mountain in a skiing accident. And his other friend, Alan Alda went after him and wound up getting hurt more. And that was the joke is that he was supposed to be better and it like went and got hurt more. And I cannot figure out what this movie was. Does this ring any bells to you? I'm going to have to look this up. Alan Alda skiing. No, I'm a, I watched a lot of ski movies during that period, and I don't think Alan Alda was in any of them. Okay, I found it. That was too easy. The Four Seasons is the name of it, and it was 1981, so I thought it was late hmm. 70s, early 80s. Hmm. It says it's a 1981 American romantic comedy film written and directed by and starring Alan Alda, which co-stars Carol Burnett, Len Carew, Carew? Sandy Dennis, hmm. Rita Moreno, Jack Weston, oh, Bess Armstrong. Oh, Rita Moreno. It draws its title from the, um, yeah, it's the Antonio Vivaldi's uh, concerto, and that's the musical score. Okay. The, the story revolves around three upper-middle-class married couples living in New York City who take vacations together during each of the seasons. After this pattern has been established, Nick leaves his wife of 21 years, Anne, during the spring trip to the cabin for a much younger woman, Ginny. He then proceeds to bring Ginny on the summer, fall, and winter vacation trips. This causes the other two couples to be uncomfortable, feeling as if they have betrayed their good friend, Anne. Or Annie, I don't know. So, it's, so yeah. not really a ski movie. Something not a ski else. movie, actually. And yeah, that's you know, none of none of those details were important to me. I guess in 1981, it was the skiing that would yeah. <laughs> left that I have the memory of. Yeah, it seems so, like a sex movie, sex like a sex comedy. Maybe it is a sex a comedy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but uh, but ski bum is that still a uh, is that still as, as honored a profession as I, it once I was? I think it is, yeah. During COVID especially. I wonder. I wonder. I I feel like these days there's so much pressure to be a young success. You know, when when I was twenty-two, the number of ways that you could be like a huge success at twenty-two were really, really limited. Mm -hmm. You could be, and a lot of them were in the arts. You could be a huge success in, at, as a rock musician or a ballerina or an Olympian, uh, you know, internationally famous and in some cases rich. Mm -hmm. But there weren't that many places where you could be a wunderkind <laughs> who became a millionaire or a billionaire. There weren't that many billionaires. There weren't any billionaires at first, but there weren't those opportunities because we didn't live in an economy that was based so much on intellectual property. If you were an inventor and you came up with something cool when you were 22, mm -hmm. You had to find a way to bring that to the market and you had to find a way to manufacture it and get the, get loans and get, um, to build it into a product that got sold in stores. There wasn't this, there wasn't the possibility that you would come up with something in your mind, you would draw it or type it up in a computer you would push a button and it would work. It would run. And then you would sell that to somebody. And 
become a millionaire or a billionaire. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a, that wasn't a that wasn't a thing. Even if you think about Bill Gates and and Steve Jobs, I mean, all those people that became those titans of industry, they came up with their ideas back in the 1970s, but they had to do all that work of getting getting the thing manufactured basically. Right. You know? Yeah. Like, like word had to get printed onto some media and sold in stores. Yeah. It had to be shrink wrapped. Shrink wrapped. Somebody had to shrink wrap that wrap that Dan and drive it out, drive I, it out I to remember the computer store. My first job in out of college, I um, worked for a company where we did compute. What, Alexa, what, stop. <laughs> Alexa, to... <laughs> shut up. Uh, what's what are some of the other names? Uh, Echo. Computer, stop. Ugh. You got that under uh, under control there. So annoying. So I we we made computer. we made software and uh, and computer based training stuff, and it it was like they had their own little little part of the little warehouse where they were shrink wrapping it and boxing up the CDs and discs and shipping them out. And it was, it was like, this was bef- we didn't even have a, we were just involved in the company when they were installing the first network to connect the computers together within the company, not, not an internet connection, just so that you could transfer files between one computer and another computer without putting it on the disc and walking it, what we used to call, have you ever heard of the term sneaker net? No. So before there were real networks, you would have a sneaker net, which meant you would put it on a disc and walk it over to the other person's computer. And that's how we would transfer information between computers before there were networks. And there were BNC cables and then eventually ethernet cables. And if you're on a Mac network, it would be, uh, you know, the little Apple talk networks, which use like a, a phone cable and, you know, but at that time period, that's that's all we had. But this is the same time period that you're talking about when these people who are now multi-billionaires, that's when they were having their ideas, you know, the, the right. 70s, 80s, and, and I guess into the beginning of the night. There are no ideas anymore, though. That's the problem is all of the ideas have been used up. Well, you can't have the... any, you can't, any idea, any any thought that a person has now, someone else has already had that. Yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah. I believe that we're we're in the era where there are no more ideas. There are no more ideas. That's, that's certainly true in fashion and style and uh, and politics. It doesn't seem like there are any new ideas. Philosophy doesn't really feel like there's anything new happening. But I feel like young people now are under a tremendous amount of pressure because there's this idea that you don't just become a ski bum. What you do is make a million dollars and then retire to being a ski bum. Like the guy that came up with, what was the, what's the one that you see is you see his stupid face all the time. Oh, Friendster or something. Yeah. Some, some guy that had, that came up with something in college and he sold it for $10 billion. And now he just rides a skateboard around Venice beach or I don't know where I wouldn't be in Venice, right? I'd be riding a skateboard around New Zealand or something. But um, but there's so many of those examples. I I remember talking to somebody back in the late '90s who was ten years younger than I was, and I said, "So what do you want to do?" And he said, "You know, like do computers." That was that was in the in the days when 
there were a lot of people around Seattle that worked at Microsoft and Amazon, but those weren't Microsoft was a big company. Amazon wasn't, but they had the, they could see, you know, they could see the vision. And, and he honestly said to me, I was probably 30 and he was 24, Mm -hmm. 23. And he was like, well, I mean, what I'm going to do is work in computers and get rich and (laughs) then retire. Nice. And then I'm going to do what I want to do. Right. And I, I I remember this because I had this conversation with them where where in my in my Gen X wisdom I said, well why don't you just do what you want to do, and right. leave skip, all the skip whole, the getting rich stuff and just do what you yeah. want to do right now, just because you know because I come from a ski bum culture where it's like look if you want to ski there's nobody keeping you from it you know go get a job at a ski resort and half the time you drive the you drive the cat and the other half of the time you ski or you work the lift and you get your skin in every day. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to get rich. And then I'm going to do. And what he was saying was that I'm going to devote myself to helping the poor. And I was like, oh, well, if you want to help the poor, just go help the poor. You don't have to get rich to do that. Like you're never going to make enough money where you can, where your money is going to help the poor. Uh, I mean, maybe in the <laughs> sense that why not? He, why why couldn't they have done that? I, I why he why he couldn't have done it? Uh, I don't know. Artificial but, limits. You know, Bill Gates has used his money to help the poor. Mm-hmm. There's no Very question much. about Very it. Very much, yeah. But in most cases, you know, Bill Gates has done it by virtue of spending his money on science. Mm-hmm. Most people think that they're going to, they're going to use their money to help the poor because they're going to, I think most, most people that have that vision think they're going to systematize some inefficiency because the reason that the poor are poor is that there are inefficiencies in the system and all they need to do is use their superior intellect to streamline those in those inefficiencies. And all of a sudden the, the money's going to flow. Mm-hmm. And that what the poor need to not be poor is money. Um, and this is in contrast to the people that think what the poor need is education or what the poor need is nutrition or um, parenting classes or whatever it is that people, various people think that the poor need. It's very interesting to me right now politically that the consensus seems to be that what the poor need is money. Um like the universal basic income is really fascinating to me and I, and I support it. I think it's a, I think it is such a novel approach to a problem that my whole lifetime has been, people have attempted to solve by all these, uh, you know, all, all these second and third degree operations like improving the lot of the poor by improving the schools and their education. That's a, that's a pretty complicated, that's a, that's a complex set of equations, right? And, and presumes that if you make the schools better, it presumes that what is the root cause of poverty is that people aren't smart or aren't, don't have enough information, uh, aren't wise, and in a way, that liberal co- that that whole cornerstone of liberalism is super patronizing. Mm-hmm. But also, like you, you could be plenty educated and not have 
a good job or have a job at all. And the, you know, and it's even a, another degree of separation when you start talking about nutrition. The reason the poor are poor is that they don't have nutrition. That's, that's certainly, that's certainly why the poor aren't uh, healthy, but to improve nutrition, you know, it's just, it takes so long to watch that make a difference in people's lives. It takes a, it takes generations if you improve nutrition. I mean, I'm an example of most of my Welsh relatives, Mm -hmm. all of my Welsh ancestors, if you look at a picture of them taken in 1890, they're all four foot 11. And it's just nutrition. I mean, there weren't any Chinese basketball players until the last 25 years, 30 years. When, when did Yao Ming come out? When did, when were there all of a sudden, like all these super tall Chinese people? Yao Ming was born September 12th, 1980. Right. He is now 40, 40 years old now. Wow. And he was selected to start for the Western conference in the NBA. Uh, let's see if it tells me the year. Year 2000 had to. Have been. Yeah. Um, okay. He was selected by the Houston Rockets as a first overall pick in the 2002 NBA draft. Right. Crazy. Yeah. But the idea that what you would do to help people is just give them a certain amount of money that would allow them to live without want. Not enough money to live luxuriously, uh, but enough money to live without want and without fear. And that that would be like a cornerstone of your, of your civilization is at least in my experience, I know that it's like in some ways the basis of, of some European socialist societies, but it's never really articulated in such a clear and concise way. You know, it's always all the different doles, they, there are a lot of hoops you have to jump through. It's all, there's a lot of sort of, uh, moral kind of coloring to it. I mean, we all know what it's like. We've all seen examples of how difficult it is really to be on welfare and how much, um, how much kind of aspersion is cast on in a, in the United States. But that's true elsewhere also. I mean, there's the, there, there have been very few socialist democracies where it's like everybody in the country gets $22,000 a year. And then if you want to make more than that, you know, dive in. But it's, but, but honestly, it's like the, We've done the research here in Seattle so many different ways where it's very clear that to take drug addicts and house them in, in comfortable housing and, um, and basically supply them with drugs is so much more cost effective for the city as a whole than allowing or than having a system where drug addicts live in a state of perpetual imbalance, they're in emergency rooms, they're, they're in jails, they're in this, this terrible cycle of 
law enforcement and emergency services, like we blow so much just in terms of cost effectiveness, right? Or just in terms of cost benefit analysis, it would be so much cheaper to just house everybody and feed them. Um, you would make money. A city would make money doing that, but it, it sticks in the craw of something intrinsic to the United States, something that is so key to the way that the USA thinks of itself, that there shouldn't be freeloaders, that there shouldn't be, and this is true of other places too. It's, it sticks in the craw of, of, of like something fundamental to conservative thinking. There shouldn't be freeloaders. You shouldn't get something for nothing. You're not entitled to anything. You have to work. You have to show that you have to, you have to be there. And if you're not, then you should be poor, basically. I mean, the, there's, a something, there's something intrinsic to the way that, that a lot of Americans think that the poor deserve to be poor. It's a moral, uh, like, like, a, like something foundational to a lot of the way people think. We would like to say thank you very much to Headspace. That's right, Headspace. You know, life is stressful, especially right now. And those of you who've listened to me talking on this show and other shows know that uh, I'm a big fan of meditation. It has helped me so, so, so much over the years. I, I, it would be an understatement to say that it changed my life. But getting started is really challenging, not just for me, but for a lot of people, I think. And sticking with it can be even more challenging. You know, and the thing is, you need to feel less stress, not more. You don't want to stress out about the meditation. That's the opposite of what you want to be doing. And you need stress relief that goes beyond some kind of quick fix, right? That's Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations, all in one easy-to-use app. It's the own, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation is, Headspace really can help you feel better if you're feeling overwhelmed Guess what? They've got a special three-minute SOS meditation for you. Trying to fall asleep? They've got wind-down sessions that their members swear by. And for parents like me, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. They can benefit from it too. It's really cool. And it's been proven that Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve your sleep, boost your focus, increase your overall sense of well-being. There's so much great stuff that's gone into making Headspace as good as they are. And uh, you know what? You deserve to feel happier. Headspace is going to be there for you. It's meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash roadwork. That's the place to go. And you will get a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal you're going to find. Again, headspace.com slash roadwork. Thanks very much to Headspace for making this show possible. And so a universal income, God, it's got to overcome so much uh, to be accepted by the general public. But I'm 100% confident that a cost-benefit analysis of it will reveal that, it's, that the, the nation as a whole would make money 
on it. It would be so much cheaper to do it that way. And God knows you'd have to, you have to wonder like what it's going to do to inflation or what it's going to do to, to money. But you know, the drag on the, on the economy and on the culture at large, the drag that's put on it by all of the social services that are there to react to the experience of the poor, right? We spend so much money dealing with the consequences of the poor that if you just took that money and, and got ahead of the problem and said, everybody gets enough money to live. It's just intriguing to me. You know, it's like, it's a fascinating thought technology that's, that that's exciting. And, and, um, because I, because the, because the premise is just so in a way, you know, conservatives love simple premises and, and at least old school conservatives love things that seem that you can make a case for like their fiscal expediency. It's just, you have to divorce it from this feeling that the poor deserve it that, and that there should be poor because if there aren't, that's going to, and it's, you know, this is a a weirdly reductive philosophy that a lot of people have that if everybody got $20,000 a year, then nobody would work. Mm -hmm. Nobody would want to, everybody would just sit around. Right. And you know, it's based on a, it's based on a Hobbesian view of, of humankind that man is basically slothful and lazy and brutish. And so the only reason people work is to, is because they're driven by this, this need to survive. It's the same exact logic that people say that people, you know, when they say, well, without religion, why would you behave morally? And, and atheists and agnostics are constantly being confronted by this question. And the reply is like, so in a way, so convoluted and in a way so basic, but it's like, I'm not a moral person because of, because I'm scared of God. You can be moral and not be scared of God. And and honestly, I've had so many people be confounded by that idea. Well, what do you mean? What even is moral if it doesn't come from God, from a from the possibility of eternal torment or some or or the rules that are like where what are your rules based in then? And you say, the Declaration of Universal Human Rights. I don't know what it, the <laughs> rules are. Like, we we all feel the rules. You feel them. And then they go, yes, that's God. And I go, no, it's not. It's it's justice. But but to describe where or to describe where it comes from or to be hung up on where it comes from, rather than to be excited to define it and expand it and codify it and and cultivate it just two very different approaches and i really want to i want to see a world where there's 
there's less suffering. It's a, it's a basic, it's a basic desire that's, that a lot of people have. I want to see a world with less suffering. It seems like a prime directive, less suffering. We live in a world where there is less suffering than there was. So much of the work we've done as human beings has been to decrease the amount of suffering and we have succeeded. That seems to be along with space travel. That seems to be Hmm. one of the major goals. And there are just so many people who feel like there should be more suffering that people should pay the price. People should, people that do wrong should suffer. And by suffering, they will learn. They'll learn to stop doing wrong. And that will make the better civilization. The better civilization will be built out of the building blocks of people that are sorry that they, that they did bad and now they're going to do good. And we're going to, we're going to have order then. And if you punish people, they'll stop being bad. And Mm -hmm. that's why we have so many prisons and that's why we have so many, um, that's why you take disruly uh, or unruly kids and you take them out of school and you put them in a special school, a mean school. So the, the ideas, uh, I mean, all of these ideas link up the, the public service notion, the, a lot of the kind of, a lot of the vibe right now. And the problem is the vibe right now sucks. It's angry. It's bitchy. It's bitter. It's entitled. But like the core, the core idea that we should reduce suffering is such a positive idea. The core idea of national service is so positive. It's like pitch in, pitch in. We're going to make it easy for you. We're going to make you do it. That's not fascism. That's not, you're not, your freedom isn't being imperiled. We're just going to make you do it in order to make it be easy. Everybody has to do it. 18 to 20, everybody has to do it. You have to go put on a uniform somewhere, stand in front of a train station and help people figure out which platform to go to or be in the military or work at the post office, whatever. We're going to, it's just going to be real easy. Everybody has to do it. And then you're going to come out of that and you're going to understand one of our systems and through that, I think you're going to understand systems in general. You're going to have an appreciation for what the government does. That's going to help you be a better citizen. You know, this stuff is, it's so positive. Mm-hmm. And the idea that it would be greeted with all this rage or that it would be promoted with rage, that there would be, that the, that the vibe in the room would be, you're going to have to do this. And you know, and if you're against this, then you're a fucking fascist enemy of the people. Mm-hmm. Like it's just such a bummer. Universal public income is like such a, that should be shrouded in rainbows. It should not be a thing that, that is, that it should be so ugly. And of course, you know, it's greeted by people that are like fascists, you know, that, I mean, everybody calls everybody a fascist now, so it has no meaning anymore. Like the word has become yeah. just in the last five years, Dan, have you noticed this? The word has become absolutely meaningless. Fascist. 
what the fuck are you talking about? And there are plenty of people that are like, yeah, fascists, right? You know, actual literal Nazi fascists. And it's like, yeah, 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 I know. The guy that runs the corner store that thinks there should be a wall between you and Mexico is a fascist. I get it. He thinks you're a fascist. Fascist now means anybody that tells me anything. That you don't, well, you have me, to not agree with it. That's the key. Yeah, it tells me something I don't agree with. Right. right. If you agree with it, it's, they're not a fascist. If you disagree, and I know they're, they're a fascist. There are people listening who are like really outraged by this, that, that I'm both sidesing it because mm. they're very convinced that there are real fascists. Mm. Millions. And, and you know what? There may be real fascists, but that doesn't change the fact that what you're saying is true. There are real fascists. That's absolutely right. But the word has, well, the word is, has become like liberal. Liberal no longer has any meaning because it became a swear word at some point. Yes. And right now it's a swear word used by everybody. People on the left, people on the right. Nobody wants to be a liberal. Liberals suck. And you know, the word used to have a, used to have meaning. That word has been chipped away at for decades now. But when I was a kid, it was a great word. It meant a real thing. It was something you said about yourself with pride. It's something I say about myself with pride. Liberal. But I also say it with defiance a little bit. You know, yeah, fuck you. I'm a liberal. Fuck you. It's, it's not a, and I, it's a thing, you know, I say with a, with a certain amount of humor, defiant humor, but, but it is a thing. It's a thing to be proud of. It's a thing to, it's the thing that makes the country better.